Hello, my name is Matthew Childs, and before we go any further with this episode of the BSI Education Podcast, I need to issue a general corrections corner. At various points in this episode, you'll hear me refer to the Office for Public Safety and Standards, when I should have been saying the Office for Product Safety and Standards. The errors are entirely mine, and my apologies to colleagues at OPSS. My biggest impact was through the inclusion of a clause um, to put a permanent warning symbol onto any product that actually contained the button or coin battery. That's important because consumers don't typically keep the packaging once the product it contains is, is, is in use, usually throw all that cardboard and everything else away. So the warning marker on the products serves as a reminder every single time that pa- that a person changes that battery, that these types of batteries are a hazard. Um, and if a child swallows that battery and the product contains that warning, um, the parent is most likely to take that child straight straight to hospital. Um, the more they kind of see these these warnings everywhere, and we increase that public awareness in terms of how hazardous these batteries are. You are listening to the Consumers and Standards series from the BSI Education Podcast in association with CPIN, the Consumer and Public Interest Network. Today's episode is on standards and consumer safety. The voice you heard at the top of the episode there was Michelle McKenna, Senior Trading Standards Officer at North Lanarkshire Council in Scotland, talking about her role as a CPIN rep on the development of the standard PAS 7055 on button and coin batteries. We'll hear more from Michelle later, and also from Nina Batty from the consumer organisation Witch, independent consultant and standards maker Geraldine Koch, and Sarah Smith from the UK government's Office for Public Safety and Standards. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs, and you are listening to the fourth episode of the BSI Education Podcast Consumers and Standards series which is about standards and consumer safety. And we are delighted to be bringing it to you in association with our friends at CPIN, the Independent Consumer and Public Interest Network, which in 2021 is celebrating its 70th anniversary. The Consumer and Public Interest Network, or CPIN, empowers and protects consumers, making everyone's lives safer, fairer and better through effective consumer representation in British standards. Established in 1951, CPIN's trained volunteers participate in the development of standards to highlight key consumer issues, making sure that real-life problems are addressed and the risk of consumer harm is minimised. CPIN believes that all consumers have a right to safe and accessible goods and services, clear information, fair treatment, effective systems of redress, and a healthy environment. CPIN representatives use the United Nations Guidelines for Consumer Protection as the foundation of their work. They sit on hundreds of standards development committees, speaking up for consumers. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash consumers. The consumer voice and standards is incredibly important. This is because standards are everywhere, making consumers' lives safer, fairer and easier. Whether you're using a mobile phone or shopping online, standards behind the scenes are setting good practice for organisations that make products and provide services. BSI publishes around 3,000 standards every year, and it'd be pretty much impossible for CPIN to get involved in every single one. So instead, resources are focused in areas where CPIN can have the greatest positive impact for consumers, based on five priorities. Sustainability, consumer vulnerability, consumer safety, digital and services. Now, the aim of the BSI Education Podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. So this series looks at some of the stories and issues for each of these five priorities. So for this episode, the CPIN priority is consumer safety. Consumers have a right to safety when using products and services. People often assume that everything they buy is safe, especially if it's from a well-known brand or retailer. In the UK, a strong regulatory framework places responsibility on suppliers to protect consumers from unsafe products and services. 
However, there are increasing challenges to consumer safety, and when things go wrong, the consequences can be devastating, from poor health to serious injury and even death. Incidents such as the Grenfell Tower fire, the Whirlpool tumble dryer recall, and exploding Samsung Galaxy Note batteries have highlighted serious safety problems and the need for those involved in consumer protection to act quickly and think creatively to keep up with the pace of change. Although no product or service can ever be completely risk-free, all reasonable steps should be taken to minimize consumer harm. Consumer participation in standards development is vital to achieving this. Here's me with a quick reminder that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or previous episodes, or even ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. So this episode looks at how CPIN and standards play an important role in the area of consumer safety with four guests. Nina Batty, Head of Campaigns at the consumer organisation WITCH, Sarah Smith, Deputy Director of the Office for Public Safety and Standards, Michelle McKenna, Senior Trading Standards Officer at North Lanarkshire Council. But we start with Geraldine Koch, Independent Consultant and Standards Maker, who has been working in consumer product safety and injury prevention for nearly 20 years. I spoke to Geraldine about how consumer safety issues have changed over the years, but I started by asking her about her own standards journey. So I started my career in product safety over 17 years ago. Um, I can't believe I'm saying that. That's quite a while um, for a testing laboratory. So that was where I first were introduced to standards, really. So I spent a lot of time learning about the clauses and the various standards and how they're interpreted and tested against. So that's where it, that's where it started, really. Um, and then most recently, I've been working as a consumer rep for CPIN, which is the Consumer Public Interest Network. And I'm also working as a coordinator, which is a really great honor to be doing that. So we help consumer reps provide the consumer voice on standards, which is really important if, if anyone's been involved in standards committees. You need to make sure that there is a consumer perspective on those committees. So that's what that's what we do as a, a coordinator and a rep. Um, also feel really lucky to be working with um, standards and on standards and part of this as a parent, really. So I have two young children um, and representing consumers, so vulnerable consumers that, you know, I can't have my children sit on the committee um, as much as I'd like to get them out to work. They're a bit young to do that. But we need to represent those vulnerable consumers in our society. And it's really important that we do that. And you're also I think you're also a technical author. Could you tell us a bit about that role, too? Yeah, that's another thing that's that's an honour to be working on. And, you know, if anyone's been involved in, in standards committees, you can understand the amount of work that goes in. It's a significant amount of work to develop these amazing standards. And it's important to be part of the group. So it's a whole steering group and committee. Um, and most of the standards that I've worked on actually have a great steering group, a great committee with various perspectives, you know, the consumer perspective, the manufacturer perspective, the um, the groups and organisations and charities. And, and the technical author is one of those roles within that. It's a very important role. But you need to ensure that the standards are understood correctly, that the clauses make sense to everybody. Um, yes, it's a great honour to be working as a technical so, author. So does this mean you are the person who, the first person who puts fingers to keypad in terms of starting to, starting to write the standard itself? Not, not necessarily, because you could be taking it on when it's under revision. So a lot of standards are revised after a certain amount of time. It can be after five years, or maybe there's been a demand in you know, products, so product safety, for example, if there's been an issue and they need to amend the standards. So you've 
you may already have the standard there that you're then amending. Um, if you're writing the standard as the first time round, then yes, I guess you are one of the first people that that really writes the information down. But it's not always that case. And which which standards have you been the technical author for? So um, PAS 7055, which is on button and coin batteries, that we've also had um, consumer reps on that as well, which is great. And also with the other ones, PAS 7100 and PAS 7050. I know I'm using acronyms here, so I'm going to explain <laughs> what those acronyms are. So a PAS is a publicly available specification. Um, and it can get a little bit challenging because it's not actually a specification. It could be a code of practice as well, which is what these are. And PAS 7050 is about bringing safe products to market. And PAS 7100 is about recalls and corrective actions. So when things go wrong, which if you're in the business of, of developing and selling products, you know, that happens. So you need to know how to deal with that. And those documents help with that. Thank you for explaining that. I mean, you're right, publicly available specification, a PAS, a type of British standard, but you're absolutely right to explain it. We need to keep doing that to make sure yes, people yeah. understand what these things are. <laughs> now, obviously, if, as you know, as a consumer, we're all consumers. Things have changed yes. incredibly over the past 50 or 60 years. I'm just thinking in terms of product safety. How has product, how has product safety changed over the years? And, and what are the new challenges to con- sort of for keeping consumers safe from harm? Yeah. Oh, gosh, Matthew, I'm not sure about when you were younger, but, um, you know, when I was younger, I have three elder brothers. So you can imagine the amount of fun that we had when we were younger that you probably wouldn't be allowed to do um, nowadays. And rightly so, I would say. (laughs) So things have changed, you know, definitely uh, dramatically over time. And like I've said, rightly so. So there will be evidence, there may be data, there may be incidents that happen, and then things are improved. And one of those ways is the development of, of standards for sure. There's been proof and there is evidence that actually standards help reduce injuries and fatalities associated with products. Um, so they're paramount, really, with, with protecting consumers, for sure. And things, things have changed. Of course, they've changed. But I would think that some of the challenges are consistent. So we will always have challenges with consumer behavior. Um, you know, when I look, I, I kind of joke, my, my son, who is seven, and my, my father, who's in his 80s, they're very similar in a way, <laughs> you know, the way that they behave. And I don't often leave them alone together at times because they get up to mischief. But those challenges, you know, the vulnerable in our society, whether that be the the elderly or other vulnerable consumers or the younger um, consumers that we have, they will always need to be protected because of their behaviour. And they are allowed to behave the way they behave. They need to go out and test themselves and test their environment. But we need to provide a safe place for them to do that. And I think that will always be a challenge. There are new challenges for sure, Um, you know, digital, the Internet of Things, you know, IoT that they're talking about at the moment. And dare I say things like Alexa, it'll probably pop up in the room and talk to me. But, you know, things are connected. So this is a this is a new challenge for sure. But it is all about protecting consumers and understanding how do these harms present themselves and then how can we prevent it? And standards is definitely one of those ways. So in your role then as a uh, a CPIN rep and a coordinator and a technical author, I'm just thinking sort of in the round, how, how does CPIN address safety in 2021? Yeah, so this is one of our priorities for sure. It will always be one of our priorities. And we need to keep an eye on issues that are arising and challenges that are arising. And we do this. We are very well connected. We work very hard with a group of networks. Um, I work on the product safety group. So we have a tremendous amount of knowledge and expertise. We have leading safety experts. So people that have been in the product safety world for many, many years, you know, longer than I have for sure. And we have a group that we can call upon. Uh, We work with many other organizations. So people like which um, capped ROSPA, various other sources of information that can help us stay on top of things. So understanding what the trends are, what the issues are, and then we come back, we regroup with, with the steering group and everybody else and figure out what do we need to prioritise and what actions we need to take. So it's a really important role. Now, you mentioned a couple of standards earlier on. I just want to dip into those a bit more. You talked about PAS 7100, uh, which is product yeah. recalls. Could you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, so that was around that that came around in uh, 2018. It was very welcomed and it's gone down really well actually. Um, so it's intended for various organisations and businesses, small to large. And I have worked with many organisations actually helped them adopt that particular um, publicly available specification. And it's about understanding what to do if you face a corrective action. So if you have a product that you realize is out on the market, whether it's a consumer has alerted you to it or a trading standards officer has alerted you to it and there's an issue, you have to take some action. Um, You can't just sit back and not do anything and hope for the best. So this document outlines step-by-step how you can actually do that. And it is freely available online, which is great. So, yeah. I just wonder what the what the driver was that. Why why is that standard being developed? You know, I think we we have a lot of product safety issues that are out there, unfortunately. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking of recent examples that have happened. COVID has been a really interesting example, actually, because the dynamics in injuries have changed. So things like DIY injuries have increased because of the behavior at home, the way we behave at home. We're stuck in the house. Um, you know, children are at risk at home um, with lots of products around and parents having to work, etc. So injuries have changed. And for some injuries, they've, they've increased. Um, so you will always have products out there that ha- that need corrective action unfortunately i don't think there will ever be a time where there will be 100% safe products out on the market just because you know i guess partly because of consumer behavior and because of the way that products change over time um, but we can certainly improve for sure well, you mentioned a seven-year-old earlier on. I think um, they will always find a new way to injure themselves. Yes, they point. most certainly will. <laughs> will. Yeah, especially seven-year-old boys. No disrespect to the um, to the boys and the girls, but they do tend to be a bit more adventurous. And you know, like I say, it's important that they are. They have to. You know, we have to have. You've got playground equipment out there, and there's standards for that. And children have to go, and they, and they are at risk, of course. You know, breaking their arms, etc., if they fall off. But we need to limit the amount of harm that can happen and and standards certainly help for that. So that's product recall. So that's power 7100. So looking at the the other standard we talked about is at sort of the other end, bringing products to market, which is power 7050. What about that? How, what's been the driver for that? And, and, uh, and what's the standard all about? Yeah, so it's it's the kind of proactive side of it. So the reactive is the PAS 7100. When you have an issue, what do you need to do? You know, you need to regroup, you need to get information and deal with that. PAS 7050 is more the proactive work. So what should your business have in place when an issue arises that you can deal with it and also to prevent those issues from happening in the first place? So outlining what are the key things that you should do, who you should work with in your organization, you know, mentioning things like risk assessment, which is also in PAS 7100. So it gives some really great outline and, and ideas on what you can do. And there's some great information in the annexes that you can you can follow through as well on that. So as a final thought then, Geraldine, I just wonder if people are interested, how can they get involved with CEPIN and its work? Yeah, great question. So if you go to the wonderful internet and you put in um, CPIN, so the Consumer Public Interest Network, you'll come to our website and you'll be able to contact us through there. And it really is a great honor to be working with the team. And the reason, as I've mentioned, is, you know, being a parent, being a consumer, we are all consumers. And you must have had that moment when you were in a store one day and you thought, hang on a minute, this doesn't look right, or there's something wrong with this product. And it's about making that difference. So you can actually do that. Um, If you contact CPEN, you could become a rep. You know, it is a volunteer capacity, finding out what you're interested in. It could be product safety. It could be sustainability. It could be environmental. It could be loads of different things that we deal with. And you can work on that passion and help improve consumers, the lives of consumers, really. Did you know Pentops? Have you ever wondered why Pentops have holes in them? The standard BS7272 specifies the requirements for caps for writing and marking instruments. This means that Pentops are manufactured with holes in them to allow air to get through if they are swallowed. We heard Geraldine Koch talk about how CPIN works with other consumer organisations, including which. 
Nina Bhatti is head of campaigns for Witch. Now, Witch is an important member of BSI's Consumer Forum, an open network that brings together organisations from across the consumer protection landscape to share valuable insights about topical consumer issues. I started by asking Nina about how Witch helps to make products and services safer for consumers. So we really do this in um, three ways. Uh, the first and foremost, we test products and we give people um, good buying advice off the back of that. So we have an extensive testing program uh, that looks at safety and it can test a range of products from um, lots of different categories. Um, for example, um, we test child car seats to toys to um, to white goods. Um, and we try to investigate the product types that we know are relevant to today's consumers um, and that have seen significant recent growth in popularity or interest. So we're really trying to stay on top of what do people need to know about. Um, for example, in 2020, we expanded this testing program to include coronavirus-related products such as face masks and hand gels. Um, but also, we've looked at smart toys and devices to reflect recent technological advances too. Um the second way we do, um, we try to make products safer for consumers is using those results to drive change. Um, we use the results of our safety testing as a way to engage with industry directly, so both retailers and manufacturers, to, to show what we found and to try to work with them to um, make their products safer or um, encourage them to take them off market until it can be done, uh, until it can be made safer. Um, but then we'll also engage with policymakers uh, like regulators and governments, um, standards bodies and other international organizations to see where we can make those business or regulatory changes that we think are needed to keep people safe. A lot of a lot of the testing we do um, goes beyond um, current regulations to see whether we can improve safety and find gaps so that we can support that uh, regulatory and standards making process. Um, we we also then use all of that testing work as well as consumer insight research and also investigations that we'll do into different types of areas to shape and inform our policy thinking. Um, I think the most high profile work that we've really done in this space um, to really bring this to life was the campaigning we'd done um, on Whirlpool's high profile tumble dryer safety issue. This was some, um, an issue that was first announced in November 2015, um, but it was when we started doing testing and noting that there were problems of the modified uh, tumble dryers that we found clear evidence of issues with the effectiveness of the modification that the company was trying to roll out to rectify the, uh, the initial fault. We've used that data that we had to inform re the regulators' investigations to make the case to Whirlpool. And actually, it's driven loads of changes, not only within the company itself, but also um, the regulators' actions in um, asking for or actually demanding a recall of um, hundreds of thousands of tumble dryers um, a couple of years ago. So we can show how our testing and our really looking into where the problems are in um, certain products or certain categories um, that we can help to inform um, what the consumer might be experiencing, but also from a scientific perspective, how these machines work to then take that um, to those who need to know and have the power to make change. Now, you mentioned there the uh, tumble dryers and, and the, the Whirlpool campaign. I just wonder if you could uh, you know, tell us about any other, some of the other high profile campaigns that have taken place over the years. Absolutely. So our history in product safety testing um, and campaigning uh, spans decades. Um, some of the most notable areas that we've really been known for has been, um, for example, our testing of uh, paint and, um, and lead in paint. So the work that we did there really led to actually banning lead in paint um, um, quite a few decades ago. We're also the organization that pushed for um, seat belts to be made mandatory in cars um, to really improve motor safety um, about 20, 30 years ago now. Um, it was um, more recently that we've been really driving the charge around child car seat testing. 
working with others um, in Europe, but also through our own testing regime, where we're really pushing beyond the standards um, and doing crash testing to show what what the um, problems could be with different car seats um, in real life crash crash situations. Um, so it's really important for us that we're constantly trying to push um, uh, through our testing and through our, um, but also through our campaigning um, to make those big changes that can lead to safer products and services for people. Um, Another recent example we had was um, making sure that fridge freezers were safe um, and uh, didn't cause a fire risk. And through our testing, we found that um, plastic back fridges which were still being sold in stores um, not so long ago, um, actually had a really um, high fire risk, um, were easily flammable and um, actually didn't pass even basic uh, flame tests that we found. Um, So we actually drove improvements through the standards um, at the EU level. And we also really pushed for retailers to stop selling plastic back fridges, even though that they were still able to technically during a grace period while the standards were changing. So it's really how we can use the insight and also the weight of which hopefully to um, get um, companies and um, organizations to do the right thing to keep people safe, not necessarily what they're technically allowed to do, but actually what is meaningfully going to make people safe today. I'm, I'm talking about today when you mentioned there are fridge freezers. I just wonder what are the safety issues most important to which right now? So one of the emerging issues for us over the last few years has been uh, the sale of unsafe products online. Um, It's something that really came about through our testing as we realized that people were buying more products online. And so they became part of the mix of the testing that we were doing. Um, comparing uh, p- the same sorts of products that you can find in stores and on online marketplaces. Now, online marketplaces have become increasingly popular for millions of shoppers um, to buy products from a growing pool of global sellers. Um, some research that we did in 2019 found that nine in 10 people in the UK had bought consumer goods in this way. And now we know that has only further increased or further entrenched uh, shopping habits over the last year um, during the pandemic as more and more people were forced to shop online. Now, people really value the low prices that they can find here and the wide choice and rapid delivery that marketplaces can offer. But actually, what um, many aren't aware of is that marketplaces have no legal responsibility to ensure that the safety of the products on their sites are actually safe to sell. Um, that is all on um, still the responsibility of the seller, the third party seller, who can be from around the world and may not even be aware of um, you know, what the rules um, and uh, expectations are on sellers in the UK around the safety of products. Now, you mentioned there about testing, and obviously, which is, is famous for its, for its testing. What about standards that you found most valuable in testing? And how do they help you, what, how do they help in working at an equal level with manufacturers to resolve these issues and improve safety for consumers? Yeah, so we we know that standards play an important role in supporting product safety. Um, You know, for most products in the UK, there is a general requirement for manufacturers and retailers to ensure that the products that they place on the market are safe and that these standards are there to give them guidance on how they can meet this requirement. So they play a really critical role in um, helping Uh, those uh, manufacturers and retailers to to deliver on their obligations. Um, We know that standards are developed by committees with experts and representatives um, from different stakeholder groups and as consumers. Um, So this is really important that we can have faith in the standards that are being put put out there to support um, those who are putting products onto the market. Um, However, with so many standards being developed or updated, we know that this can also be quite challenging. Um, Consumer groups uh, have to identify individuals uh, with the necessary expertise to follow the discussions, which can be quite technical. Um, And despite the best efforts of consumer groups, um, we're usually outnumbered by representatives from other stakeholder groups, such as business. Fortunately, we know that all committee decisions are taken by consensus. So this does provide some protection that all views are taken into account. But there is a real, um, I guess, um, 
pressure on consumer groups to ensure that they can get the right people um, into the rooms um, at the right times and be able to resource that. So how does WITCH use European and international standards in the collaborative test programmes with other European consumer organisations? So we are really keen to work with as many organizations across the world, really, to ensure that we are doing as much as possible to test on behalf of consumers. So we're part of a global consortium called the International Consumer Research and Testing uh, Group. And this is more than 35 consumer organizations across the world that carry out joint testing and investigations on um, different types of product categories. Some of the more recent uh, collaborations we've done in this space is um, testing baby and child car seats. Um, our experts have specially designed the crash tests to be more demanding than UK and European standard safety tests. Um, and they're derived from tests by the European Euro NCAP. So this is an organization that carries out te crash testing on cars to show how well they can protect occupants in severe accidents. Um, we feel that our tests more accurately reflect what could happen in a real crash than a standard safety test used in the UK and EU. Now we can really only do these sorts of um, types of tests with others. Um, it's a huge amount of resource and a huge amount of expertise um, that we really draw on from um, different organizations and pull together to make sure that we can be as robust and as challenging as we can um, to really put these safety tests to the test. Um, and um, it's driven huge results. And we've really been able to drive changes in um, and the design and manufacturing of products with the results of these. So we're really proud of the work that we do um, with our European partners. Now, to sort of final and general point, I mean, how, is imp how important is it that which and other consumer organisations influence the standards being developed in the first place? I think it's really important to have consumer representation there. Um, I think I've mentioned that it, it is really difficult to um, to try to manage when is the right time to be as part of that process. Um, it can be, as I said, you need to have the right expertise at the right time and be able to resource um, that type of commitment. So, but it's incredibly important that uh, we we do have a voice in some way into these into these processes because what we test is the real life a way um, of how someone will use the product, engage with the product, um, and experience it over a long period of time. We don't just test it at the beginning; um, we will also test it for its longevity, for its sustainability, um, and really that's the sort of learning that we feel can go back. Um, to standards making bodies and um, and manufacturers to say this is really um, how someone will experience the product and therefore should be brought into the wider design of the product in the first place. It's really about how we can make it easier for consumer organizations to be part of that discussion. I know a lot of times we've had some frustrations or um, disappointment that we haven't been able to resource um, that sort of engagement in the standards um, making world, um, we're lucky enough to have that really strong relationship with CPIN colleagues that we can keep feeding in views, keep sharing intel and insights. But um, if there are um, further ways that we could um, be able to engage in the standards making process, we would definitely uh, want to make the most of that. But it, it really does come down to how much is expected of uh, consumer organizations that are working across a whole host of products, um, sectors, cate product categories, um, whereas a lot of the um, business stakeholders, for example, will be focused on that particular product for that particular company. Um, so there is uh, sometimes, I guess, a, an imbalance of resource to be able to really effectively engage in these and make sure and have confidence that consumers have um, equal representation on standards making committees. Did you know window blinds? Window blinds are a commonplace feature in homes and offices. Unfortunately, babies and young children have become accidentally entangled with internal window blind cords and chains. The standard BS EN 13120 specifies the requirements for internal blinds. For example, placing limitations on cord or chain lengths and using easy brake devices that come apart under pressure.
We heard Nina Batty from Witch talking about how Witch works with other consumer organisations, industry and policymakers to drive change. It's to that policymaking and government perspective that we turn to next. A former Trading Standards Officer, Sarah Smith is currently Deputy Chief Executive at the UK's Office for Public Safety and Standards, or OPSS. Sarah describes the product safety system and the relationship between standards, regulation, industry and consumers with regard to product safety. I started our conversation by asking her to tell me more about the OPSS. Yeah, so the Office for Product Safety and Standards was um, was formed uh, back in 2018. So we're still quite, quite a new organisation and we're the national regulator for product safety. We're part of the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, and we lead and coordinate the UK's product safety system. Um, and as well as that, we're also um, responsible for leading the relationship with across government with the British Standards Institution and also with UCAS, our national accreditation body. And the OPSS... Um, provides national leadership um, of, the, of the product safety system. Um, and particularly, we, um, we invest in things like the research into product hazards. Um, we coordinate um, intelligence and data in relation to product safety. Um, we work very closely with our partners in local authority trading standards, who carry out a lot of the inspection and enforcement activities. And we also um, have very strong partnerships with BSI, UCAS, um, and also with um, ROSPA and other consumer bodies like the Child Accident Prevention Trust and WITCH, who I know are, are also very well engaged in um, the standards making process and are very active participants in, in CPIN. So what have we been up to? Over the, over the last um, three years. Um, it's, it's been a very busy time in, in product safety. Um, not only have we um, been preparing um, for the UK's exit from the, the European Union and taking on um, a whole suite of new responsibilities um, in regard to that, particularly around issues like designating standards, um, about um, uh, implementing the, the Northern Ireland Protocol um, and also um, uh, thinking about the, the new way that um, the, the bodies that do conformity assessment, our approved bodies, uh, gain that um, approval. And they're all things that, that we um, are responsible for in the Office for Product Safety and Standards. Um, as well as that, um, we also are very keen to make sure that, that local authorities have the um, support and um, uh, access to, to technical um, resource that they need to do, to do their work um, at the front line. And we also we fund um, a testing programme to make sure that they can get products tested to, to make sure they comply uh, with the, the legal obligations. We also recognised um, through um, issues like the Grenfell Tower tragedy, where um, a, a fridge freezer was um, reported to have been the source of that. And also, um, you might remember the, the Whirlpool issues around um, unsafe tumble dryers, that we recognised that the UK needed a stronger approach to, to how it managed product safety incidents. And as a result of that, we've um, established a, a national incident management um, approach, um, and that's been underpinned by a BSI uh, code of practice on product recalls and corrective actions. And as well as that, we've also um, been doing a lot of work to, to, to work with partners to promote um, messages to consumers about how to to use products safely, particularly around issues involving um young children and um, your listeners might have been aware of our campaigns on issues around button batteries and um, blind cords and also um, drawing attention to, to the kind of seasonal issues around fancy dress costumes um, and fireworks. So, so quite a lot going on in the Office for Product Safety and Standards over a very busy um, three years. 
Yes, it sounds like you've made a you've made a, a grand entrance in that in that time over over those three years. And you've mentioned there other players within sort of the new architecture, something you described there as a sort of product safety system. I mean, how do you see this this product safety system changing or improving in the future to deliver even better outcomes for consumers? Yeah, and I think it genuinely is is a system. Um, where we all have our parts to play. And obviously that starts fundamentally with um, manufacturers and producers who place products on the market. And um, they have their um, responsibilities to make sure those products um, are safe. But obviously um, that's a moving feast as well. We're seeing a lot of innovation, new technologies and new products emerging. And it's about how we think about our product safety system for the future. That, that enables businesses to bring new and innovative products to market, but also to make sure that consumers stay safe. So one of the things that um, we've been doing this year is we've launched a call for evidence on our product safety review. Um, and this really is about um, reflecting on, on where the product safety system is and where it needs to be um, for that long-term approach to make sure that that framework um, is is fit for the future. And particularly um, considering the framework um, in terms of how it protects consumers from unsafe goods, um, it's simple and and flexible enough to take account of new risks and opportunities um, and that it can respond quickly to new and emerging threats particularly around issues like digital technology and um, new models of supply, which we will also you know, be very well aware of, um, particularly as we've seen during the pandemic about the switch to, um, you know, to online sales. You know, if that wasn't a trend before, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute massive trend now. Um, and also thinking about how we can create that product safety framework for, for the future that, doesn't just last us for the next five years, but you know, pitches out for, for, for the for the next considerable period. Um, and also about supporting regulators and businesses to, to be open and transparent about product safety um, so that ultimately consumers can be protected and, and also make informed choices about the products that, that they buy and use. You mentioned the um Sarah, the, the the changes to the way the way we shop and the way we uh, we, we our buying habits in terms of moving online, obviously a growth over the last five to ten years, but accelerated because of COVID. We're all doing more and more online. I just wonder where, from an OPSS perspective, you know, where you see the greatest challenges and risks, and how do you see standards helping to mitigate those risks? So I think um, you know the market has has definitely moved. The, the situation that, that we're in now is our framework was designed for very much bricks and mortar um, regulation and also um, the, the kind of roles and responsibilities that, that we envisage um, the actors in the supply chain having have, have fundamentally um, changed as well. So what, what we've been really clear about in the um, call for evidence on the product safety review is we need to think clearly about those supply chains and thinking about where best the um, obligations can be imposed on on the actors in the supply chain, how how do regulators, what powers do they need to enable them to to make sure that consumers can can stay safe. So it's very much about thinking carefully about who has obligations, how how do we make sure those obligations are are, um, undertaken appropriately and and what are the tools and mechanisms that the regulator of the future will need to to continue to make sure that that products that UK consumers have um, are safe. So the online question is a a very live one and um, I think it's fair to say if there was a a magic bullet um, we would have already already taken it but I think it's about thinking carefully about that system that we have and who best is able to act and when, and you know what what 
what kind of system do we need going forward um, to, to properly protect consumers? So lots of um, we've had lots of responses to the call for evidence, as you might imagine, and a lot of them feature um, around the online um, the online the online opportunities and challenges. And you'd expect us to, to be thinking about those very carefully, to be looking at the, the evidence base, to be looking at international comparators. Um, because we've also got to recognise that this is a global supply chain um, that, that products are traded in. Um, it's, it's not simply about taking some actions um, for the very, very immediate. It's about how, how do we build those in to the kind of systems that are now in play and, and how do we seek consensus um, on, on the best way forward. Now, you've, as a final thought, um, Sarah, I want to pick up on what you said around designated standards. In a previous episode of the podcast, we looked at standards and Brexit and the issue of well, the difference between harmonised standards and designated standards. Can you tell us a bit more about, about designated standards? And as I understand it, you're the one who gets to designate them. Is that correct? Uh, well, <laughs> OK. So um, desi- designated standards is our new, um, our new term for... Um, the, the, the standards that used to be officially recognised by the by the European uh, Commission, and now that the UK has has left the European Union, we've had to obviously um, make arrangements so that standards can be um, um, designated and, and recognised um, in the in the UK market, and um, this has a been a, you know a, a very important piece of work that we've developed. Um, in consultation with the British Standards Institution um, and also um, making sure that the um, standards that we designate um, do actually provide the presumption of conformity with our, with our regulations. And these new responsibilities um, are our Secretary of State's responsibilities to, to, to designate um, the standards and um, our, our new processes involve working closely with with BSI um, making sure that we undertake an appropriate um, technical um, assessment of the standard to make sure it's um, it's going to deliver the essential safety requirements um, and also to make sure that um, the stakeholders um, who are likely to have an interest have been part of that standards making process um, and that you know, there isn't any kind of evidence in in the in the margins about um, those standards not offering that um, presumption of conformity with 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 the regulations. So it's a it's a very new process for us. Um, we've um, as we came out of the transition period from leaving the European Union, we brought over the whole catalogue of um, previously. Um, approved standards and you know we now have all of those on the on the gov.uk website and we're just starting the process now of um undertaking our assessments and making the recommendations for the, the for the new standards that are, are emerging and um, i was only in in dialogue with some colleagues um today um about the first 20 or so, or so of though of, of those standards that um require the, the Secretary of State to, to designate them. So it's a, it's a very new and interesting and exciting process for us and obviously enables the, the UK to be um, fleet of foot in terms of maximising um, safety um, and, and promoting good safety standards, um, but also enabling um, businesses to, to, to have that kind of assurance that they get from, from using um, designated standards and, and helping them to, to, to meet their legal obligations. So it's a very um, interesting and new process for us and one that we're, be, we're delighted to be working with BSI um, on. So as a final thought then, Sarah, I just wondered from a, from a government perspective, I mean, we on, on the podcast, well, and BSI generally, we talk about, you know, having the wide, a widest variety of, of perspective and expertise and experience that goes into standards making. It's very much a group effort. I suppose from a government perspective, how is important for, for you and the, your work that you do on consumer safety and product safety to have that diversity of expertise and, uh, and experience that goes into the standards themselves? Yeah, and I think um, you know that's why why we're so keen um, 
in in bays about the work that that CPIN does, um, about really um, making sure that that voice of consumers, um, the public interest and enforcement is represented appropriately in technical committees. Um, I mean, certainly my experience is that technical committees, um, you know, there's a lot of great expertise there, um, but but sometimes it's it's it gets to the very technical, and I think it's really important that we have um, representatives there who are able to 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 make the bridge between that very technical conversation and actually think through what does this mean for consumers? Are consumers going to be safe if this is the way that this standard is 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 made and crafted? So so we're really. Um, keen on making sure that there's diversity of participation in the standards making process, whether that's CPIN members being present, whether it's government representatives, whether it's thinking about um, the diverse needs of communities um, in terms of, of, of users of products, um, and also thinking about diversity in terms of the um, businesses that, that are represented um, you know whether that's large businesses, small businesses, businesses looking to enter into different markets, um, and and making sure that the standards making process hears all of those um, contributions, because it can only mean that you know the standard ends up being a better product in the end, um, and and that you know in ensuring a, a broad range of voices and that the process is inclusive it is fundamental um, for us. Did you know domestic appliances? Children or older people who may have slower reactions or thinner skin have been burnt by touching the external surfaces of kettles and oven doors. The standard BSEN 6335 deals with the safety of stationary electric cooking ranges, hobs and ovens. It specifies the maximum permitted temperature of external surfaces for these domestic appliances. We finish this episode where we started, with Michelle McKenna, Senior Trading Standards Officer at North Lanarkshire Council in Scotland. We heard from Michelle at the top of the episode, talking about the influence of CPIN and the consumer voice in the development of the standard PAS 7055 on button and coin batteries. I spoke to Michelle about the role of trading standards to intervene in consumer safety. But to kick off our conversation, I asked her about that CPIN role and her own standards journey. So I'd say it started um, around about 20 years ago when I was at university and studying for my degree in consumer protection, which is the first stage towards becoming a trading standards officer. Uh, there I studied the ISO 9000 series of standards and a range of safety standards. Um, and then during my career as a trading standards officer, I've regularly made use of standards when taking part in market surveillance work or assessing a product following a complaint or when a business um, has needed advice. So the general product safety regulations, which is one of the, the, the biggest sets of regulations we enforce, um, requires that consumer products must be safe um, and safety can be assessed by the application of standards. Um, if the product complies with a designated standard, it automatically is taken to be safe. And then in March last year, uh, got my first project for Seepin when I joined the steering group for PAS 7055, the button and coin battery um, safety PAS, which was an absolutely fantastic first project to be involved in. Um, and through my Seepin journey, I've realised that there is literally a standard for everything. Um, recently, I even found out there's a standard for how to make a cup of tea. So it's really opened my eyes in terms of... Um, it's not just the, these, these standards that we use for, for safety and other things, that they're, they're literally as a standard for everything. There is. And uh, uh, drinking tea and making the perfect cup of tea is something we've covered <laughs> on the podcast a lot. And I must ask you, because I asked this, this of a few people, and the answer is milk in first. So how do you prefer no. your tea, Michelle? Definitely <laughs> not milk in first. You can't. It's got to be the tea bag, the hot water. And then once the tea bag has been removed, then we put the milk in. <laughs> 
Oh, right. Well, I'm going to refer you to previous episodes as a bit of homework after after this recording, (laughs) but we shall shall move on. Now, you mentioned that seeping. So I'm interested as why did you want to become a seeping rep in addition to your role as a a trading standard officer? And particularly, you know, what experience do you bring and what are the sort of personal benefits you, you gain from being part of that network? All of the areas of the trading standards work that I've enjoyed the most are around about protecting the most vulnerable in our society. Um, and by being a seeping rep, that allows me to give consumers a voice from a position of knowledge during standards development. Um, I've always been really curious around the process uh, for standards development. I've led on a number of safety projects which have used standards Um and when I was, was carrying out a project into the safety of children's clothing, I gave some feedback in terms of the application of the standard and some difficulties around about interpretation. So when I heard um, about the work of seeping, and that would give me an opportunity to have an input at standards development, that was really appealing to me and something that I thought I could have a positive influence on, um, kind of due to my passion for safety work. Um, I'm also a, a mum to two young kids, aged six and eight, which helps um, whenever I'm considering the consumer view, especially for standards that seek to protect children. So, Now, you've mentioned uh, trading standards a, a few times. I just wonder, I mean, listeners may not be aware about the organisation. So what's, what's the purpose of trading standards? And in particular, you know, how does it intervene to protect consumer safety? Well, our, our primary function is to maintain a fair and safe environment for consumers and businesses. So to do this, we enforce the requirements of hundreds of pieces of legislation. So that goes from our more kind of traditional function of checking the accuracy of weighing and measuring equipment through to, to some of the things that are, are lesser known that we're involved in to include responsibilities for green legislation such as energy labelling, cotton buds and microbeads. So we're, we're involved in um, everything and anything. Now tell us about some more, some of the projects you've involved, been involved with then in the past to protect consumer safety. Well, as I say, I'm really fortunate that Trading Standards covers such a wide array of, of projects. So I've, I've been able to be involved in some really interesting projects. But I would say that this past year, without a doubt, has been the most challenging for me um, as I've been heavily involved in the enforcement response to COVID. I sit on the Environment, Health and Trading Standards COVID Expert Officer Group, um, which has coordinated the enforcement response of all the 32 Scottish local authorities. And we've done that in partnership with Police Scotland and and the HSE. So that's been an interesting area of work. Um, I lead for product safety for my local authority, North Lanarkshire Council, um, and I've been heavily involved in monstering product safety through market surveillance of imported goods, um, including PPE, toys, cosmetics, furniture, clothing. Um, and I've led in several of the, the safety projects, uh, including for children's clothing, candles, part-worn tyres, um, and all the, the kind of toy trends that we've seen, fidget spinners, poppets, hoverboards. Um, so that I've, in, I've enjoyed all that work. Um, and I've been really fortunate in that I, I gained excellent experience while working on secondment to Police Scotland to investigate doorstep time incidents. Um, that involves aggress- traders that have got aggressive trading practices and misleading sales practices. Um, and that gave an opportunity to protect our most vulnerable um, because we, we gave practical interventions through reporting these criminals to the, the procurator fiscal and then put supports in place for the, the victims. Uh, another area of work that I've, I've really enjoyed um, is work on with counterfeit goods and IP investigations. If it carries a profit-making brand name, then it will be replicated. And that includes everything from medicines, which is quite scary, through to, to car parts. Um, so as, as well as the, the obvious safety risk attached with counterfeit go- goods, it has got an element of profit loss for the brands, which can have a, a massive impact on on jobs. So that's some of the, the, the kind of range of, of projects mm-hmm. we've, we've been involved in. You mentioned fidget spinners there. I think somewhere yeah. in this in this house, there are pl- plenty of fidget spinners in various drawers. My children went yeah. through a phase of buying lots of those. Every time I went to the, every time I went to the shops, we had to buy a different a different one. Now, 
you've mentioned a Paz yeah. 7055 earlier on on button and coin batteries. Now, particularly interested in this in this particular standard. So as a CPIN rep, how did you go about building a research evidence that was the research evidence that was considered in the development of this particular standard? I was really fortunate in that the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission had established a task force to investigate button um, safety and to consider the options to reduce the instance of battery ingestion. So they published loads of, of really useful information, done lots of lots of research on it. So I, I kind of started there and had a look at um, what they had done. Uh, the US records and publishes accident statistics. So I was able to identify the type of products which most commonly cause these incidents. Unfortunately, the UK doesn't publish the same sort of data. So some of the products, um, including toys, electrical devices and medical devices, are already covered in existing standards. But there was nothing specific for the likes of kind of calculators, book lights, greeting cards, your bathroom and kitchen scales, jewellery, decorations. So um, that, that was where the, the PAS was looking to cover. Uh, and of course, I looked at lots of the media reports and publications on incidents in, in the UK. So in, in 2017, the Health Care Safety Investigations Branch launched, launched an investigation following the tragic death of a three-year-old girl who had swallowed um, a coin cell battery. So that's a battery around about the size of a five pence piece. And the battery became lodged in her food pipe. So tragically, this was the second death um, in so many years after another little girl had died in 2016 and she had swallowed a, a battery from um, 3D glasses. So the recommendation of the report from the Healthcare Safety Investigation Branch was for the development of a, um, a PAS. So soon after, the, the Office of Product Safety and Standards sponsored the, the PAS uh, and it has been, it's been a great piece of work and hopefully we'll kind of standardise all, all the warnings um, and, and make a difference in terms of these products that didn't have any specific standard in relation to the, the inclusion of a button or a coin battery. So clearly a, a very, very important standard there. I just wonder from, from your perspective, what do you think are the sort of the top three issues that you feel seeping got addressed in the standard? Well, I'd say that my biggest impact was through the inclusion of a clause um, to put a permanent warning symbol onto any product that actually contained the button or coin battery. That's important because consumers don't typically typically keep the packaging once the product it contains is, is, is in use, usually throw all that cardboard and everything else away. So the warning marker on the product serves as a reminder every single time that pa- that a person changes that battery, that these types of batteries are a hazard. Um, and if a child swallows that battery and the product contains that warning, um, the parent is most likely to take that child straight straight to hospital. Um, the more they kind of see these, these warnings everywhere and we increase that public awareness in terms of how hazardous these batteries are. Uh, so that, that was one of my, my kind of main interventions, I would say. Um, I also saw for clarity around about the requirement for um, retailers and online selling platforms to alert that a product contained a button or coin battery. So this allows a consumer to make um, an informed choice whether to actually purchase that product or to choose another product that has a different type of battery that that isn't so hazardous. Another thing I've done is I spent a long time researching the reasons why medical devices weren't included in the scope of the pass, just because some of the information um, I had looked at from Australia and the US indicated that, that medical devices um, had had caused incidents. Um, what I found was that medical devices actually have their, their own standard um, and there's a reference to the safety of the, the, the button and coin battery um, within that. So within this pass, I asked for that to be specifically referenced, just so that any manufacturer um, looking at it, even if, if their product is out of scope, they should consider the standardised warning texts that the, the pass creates. Because really what we want to see is that uniform warning on absolutely everything that um, includes a button or a coin battery. So I, I believe that I played a really active role in the steering group and felt that I had enough of an impact um, to make sure the consumer voice was heard 
during development and it for me it was a, a very worthwhile project I gained a load of experience and met some really interesting people along the way so yeah it was really worthwhile now you mentioned the other people there obviously you're you're around the table as a CPIN rep you're there for in part, as part of sort of trading standards how did you feel about having other consumer organizations bringing their sort of their range of expertise to developing the powers I mean do you think do you think it led to a more robust and credible standard yeah, I would say so because having us all around about there meant that the consumer voice was was really strong, um, and the passion from everybody that was involved was, was there uh, in the steering group. One of the the functions of the PAS is to to raise awareness of the dangers of button coin batteries, and um, Child Accident Prevention Trust, ROSPA, and OPSS have done a tremendous amount of work to to achieve that. I actually worked with. Child Accident Prevention Trust to support their awareness raising campaigns. So everybody was kind of singing from the same hymn sheet, as we, we would say. And um, there was no really no, no real disputes in, in terms of um, the points that should be included. Everybody, everybody was working towards creating something that, that was really useful and really positive. My thanks to Geraldine Kosh, Nina Batty, Sarah Smith, and Michelle McKenna for their contributions to this episode. The next episode in this series will look at the issue of digital and how CPIN and standards play a role in keeping consumers' personal data safe and secure and helping them to make informed choices about digital products and services. To make sure you don't miss out, subscribe to the BSI Education Podcast now, wherever you get your podcasts. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. You just heard a stripped media production.